the key factor to growing your brand, to gaining market share, if you realize that most people buying your brand are not going to be these loyal tribe members that believe in your set of values, etc., then the most important part is acquiring new customers. It's investing in mental and physical availability. Welcome to The Future Podcast. I'm your producer, Greg Gunn, and I am still at home in a bubble of self-isolation. Fortunately for all of us, though, I've got a mic and a will to continue producing this podcast. Now, today's episode is fiery right from the start. Chris talks with brand strategist Steph Hummerlink about the nuance of branding and why that matters. Although the two don't necessarily agree about any of it. If you are interested in branding, strategy, and enjoy a healthy debate, then keep listening. Chris and Steph get deep into the weeds of brand purpose, brand differentiation, and why it's important for a brand to be just as good as it is unique. It's about Coke versus Pepsi and McDonald's versus In-N-Out. Even though In-N-Out is the clear winner, though. Okay, don't, don't at me. I kind of regret saying that. Please enjoy our branding conversation with Steph Hammerlink. I sent you this this letter. I was planning to actually send it to you physically, but I thought this will be quicker and I wanted quick results. So <laughs> that's why I just sent it through you to LinkedIn. So the, what the letter basically said was that it was kind of disengaging from, from uh, recent content from the future. And, and the main idea why I said that wasn't because it wasn't any good or anything like that. I, I love the future and it did a lot of things for me. But growing up as a brand strategist, I've seen a lot of new resources, new kind of um, people, thought leaders from different industries, such as marketing science and behavioral science. And they bring a slightly, albeit maybe a completely different perspective to what a brand is and to how a brand actually grows. And so a lot of things you've been talking about with, with let's say, uh, Marty Neumeier, uh, whom I also <laughs> really admire, but still a lot of things such as brand differentiation or brand purpose that are discussed are sometimes I think presented in a way that they are a little bit um, overpowered or overused, while in reality, it's not always the case for a lot of businesses. So I would love to have this conversation with you and bring maybe some, hopefully some, some nuance, or maybe you can just bring me back to the group and maybe I was wrong. <laughs> Come back to the tribe. No, okay, so this is a great jumping off point then. Maybe we can compare the differences because... I only know what, what it is that I believe. I don't know what it is that you believe. And so maybe we mm -hmm. can go point by point and have a discussion about that. So let's awesome. let's start. Where do you think it makes sense for us to start? Well, let's maybe jump in with one of the biggest things, which Ooh. is dif differentiation. Okay. Just 
let's, let's, let's take it head on. So th the, this idea of differentiation actually started way before uh, Marty Neumeier. Idea, what Marty Neumeier says is basically when everybody zigs you zag, you know, you need to be different to stand out. This idea, and this actually started a long time ago with, uh, I think their name was Keller and Cutler, who are two marketing scientists. And the idea again was to make companies stand out, to be different, and that way you will attract customers. Marty, Marty Neumeier added to that idea the, the fact that um, a brand is a customer's gut feeling. So I think that's still one of the, the key strong points. And I, and I think there's nothing wrong with that fact. But then he makes a bridge to saying that if you are different, you will attract customers. So that's, that's the whole concept behind differentiation. Oh, okay. All right. Mm -hmm. So I don't think he solely says being different is enough to be a brand. You have to be good and different because there's different like you're crazy. Your your hair is uh, hot pink and you're wearing green pants and orange shirt. It's like you're a hot mess. Right. But absolutely. No, no. So there's I bad agree. and different. And, yeah. Yeah. But you want to be good think... and different. Absolutely. And I, I don't think Marty is, is wrong in that case. I think, again, what he said about that gut feeling is really important. But there is a leap of faith that happens there that if we actually understand that a lot of buying is about gut feeling, and that's yes. what a lot of behavioral science ag agrees on, mm -hmm. is that the fact that gut feeling is really something that happens almost unconsciously. So most of the buying we do actually, and this is scientifically proven in most of it, is actually done almost like we're not really it's thinking emotional. about it. It's, it's emotional. Yeah, well, yes, it's, it is. Well, and even emotional is a, is a tough word because emotional kind of looks like we're still thinking about it, but we're, we're letting our emotions decide. But in reality, it's almost like we didn't even consider it. It just happened because there's this idea of uh, it's called system one or system two thinking. I don't know if you know this concept. I'm, I'm familiar with slow thinking and fast thinking, right? Well, yeah, it's it's. It's it's the idea that that most of the thinking happens in our reptilian brain, which mm -hmm. is just like our unconscious brain that just picks up signals and does a lot of the processing for us. And then it gets sent to system two, which is like where we process these things and we make it rational. And so a lot of buying decisions actually happen on the level of unconscious buying, which means that for a lot of cases, meaningful differentiation doesn't really matter because people don't really consider that. And it's really interesting if you look at a lot of data that, um, for example, if they test for, let, let's let's do a test. Like if you would open your fridge right now and you, you would take out some, some products, like would you know the positioning or the purpose of these products? Uh, no, not in the fridge. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so the interesting thing is, because let me um, point this to a, a person who, who actually wrote the, the Bible on, on like the anti-differentiation the anti Bible, that's Byron Sharp. He's a professor in marketing science. He says that uh, meaningful differentiation doesn't really exist. So he doesn't believe in the fact that people buy stuff because it has a different positioning or meaning. He says that most buying is done unconsciously and you buy ma mainly based on the fact that the product is mentally and physically available. But I, I want to get into that later. But so to get back to that point of differentiation, 
I think, yes, what you said, if Marty says that a brand should be good and different, that's already an important nuance. But oftentimes a brand doesn't even have to be different to get good sales. And that's what's interesting because I think a lot of times... Yeah, for sure. I think most brands actually aren't that different. I mean, if you look at Coca-Cola versus Pepsi or any other, they aren't really, well, of course, they have their visual identity, which is distinctive from each other. But in terms of positioning or differentiating themselves, they aren't really all that different. Would you agree? No, I would totally disagree. Okay, so let's get into (laughs) it. Because, because, you know, Coca-Cola has, for a period of time, been in a cola war with Pepsi for decades. Mm-hmm. And then the cola wars are over because the number one selling cola brand is Coke. And the number two selling cola brand is Diet Coke. Mm-hmm. Pepsi comes in a distant third. And um, there's a number of things that are at work here. Because a long time ago, I think uh, Coca-Cola positioned themselves as the like the real thing. Whereas Pepsi... Mm-hmm position themselves as the choice of new generation and after watching their campaigns go on for a couple of decades you start to realize they're always pepsi always chasing new while coca-cola is telling you that if you want the original the authentic it's coca-cola so we start to align ourselves with different tribes right and so they've completely slaughtered them in in the market where their market share is is they're not number two they're number three mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the, there's the, the, there's a really interesting thing about this. The question is, is is it is the success of Coca-Cola due to the fact that they are positioned differently than Pepsi, or is it something else? And that's what again, Byron Sharp in his because he does really like in-depth scientific studies. This is not just like somebody assuming something. This is uh, studies over different markets, over different categories. And so what he says is that, for example, why Coca-Cola would be more successful than Pepsi is because of these ideas of these concepts of mental and physical availability. And what that means is Coca-Cola is more readily available as a soda drink. That's by doing a lot of advertising, by just being out there in the world, by constantly advertising. But they are also more physically available. So Coca-Cola has a, has been known to be really good at distribution games. So they, for example, Coca-Cola, everywhere you go in the world, you can buy a Coca-Cola, you can see a vending machine, you can buy a Coca-Cola. But the thing is, for a lot of consumers, if, for example, Coca-Cola is not physically availability, they might as well buy a Pepsi-Cola. And that's where the, the there's... A, big, a bit of an issue with this concept of brand tribes, because brand tribes, again, comes from the same school of if you are different, people will lock into your meaning and so they will become advocates of your brand. But what this study shows is that most of the revenue doesn't come from these these heavy buyer, these loyal brand um, people, these tribes, actually most of the profits or at least a huge proportion of, a, of profits or revenue comes from light buyers, people that buy your brand, let's say, once, one time every year. And so there's an issue if we tend to over-focus on this idea of brand tribes and, and brand loyalty, because in reality, a lot of the numbers show that um, it's not that big of a deal. For example, 72% of Coke buyers also buy Pepsi. Okay. But what does so that mean? 
So I think it's one thing to look at um, what has happened in the marketplace and find causal relationships, where you say like uh, Coca Cola has really good at distribution. Mm-hmm. Really good at advertising, so they can occupy both the mental and physical space of people, and then mm-hmm. to say, "Well, we only buy Coke uh, because it's more available," mm-hmm. and and that's like after the fact reading and like, how did Coke become the dominant player? Because it wasn't always the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's the question, and I think there's two ways to answer this, and and I think what that data shows, for example. Is that a lot in in a lot of cases it is about being physically and mentally mentally available, and you don't have to be always that different to be successful. I'm not saying that differentiation can can't be a good thing. I mean, we've seen there's these beautiful brands like Nike and Apple that are really successful in in doing these things. But there's also millions of companies out there that aren't differentiated, but just understand really good what their category is about. And they play that game really well and they are successful. So I'm not saying differentiation can't be a strategy to win, but I'm saying that differentiation isn't the only strategy to win. And the danger is that if we all try to create brands that are so meaningfully different, that there's like this endless storm of people trying to positioning their brands so specially, while actually people, consumers that want to buy, they have a certain expectation about a certain category and they just need the right product at the right moment. And that's oftentimes more important. So I think what the issue is here is I'm not trying to say that being different is bad. I think just that sometimes it's a lot more nuanced. And when we're trying to help brands grow, that realizing that this is not the only factor of growth. It's it's not the only thing that will make your brand successful. For example, things as, as distribution and just mental availability are almost as crucial as differentiation. So I don't know if you're feeling this idea or where it comes from? Well, I don't think um, Marty or myself has have gone out and said that differentiation is the only thing that matters. You know, no, no, no. And, and I don't think that's it at all. So I think it's helpful to have a more nuanced conversation, but that doesn't mean that the nuance overpowers the core principles. So let's talk a little bit more about this because I like to talk about things in the concrete. And I remain mm-hmm. open. Obviously, you sound very well read and researched on this. And this is wonderful to have a conversation with somebody who is so well informed. Now, mm-hmm. let me ask you something. Do you think when you buy something, it says something about who you are or who you aspire to be? <laughs> I used to think that. <laughs> Not anymore? I I think it's, again, it depends on especially the category. So there okay. are some more highly emotionally involved categories, maybe cars, maybe clothing. But in a lot of cases, when I start to look at like just the, the things that are around me, for example, right now I'm in my... I'm in my desk and my office space. If I look around me, the clothes I wear, the, the things I, I'm drinking, I'm eating, I'm buying, they are, I, I would say like 80% of them is completely not to, to the fact that it fits my values or anything of that matter. So for most brands, I don't think it does matter at all. And what also happens a lot is that I post rationalized. So that's again, that's system one, system two thing. For example, Patagonia, is one of my favorite brands when we mm. talk about brand purpose. It's a beautiful brand. And yes. also what they are doing, it's amazing. I love them. 
But the, the funny thing is, I saw Patagonia pop up here and there in like just probably hipsters wearing it. I was like, wow, this is a cool brand. And I love outdoorsy stuff. So I was kind of hooked by it almost like just unconsciously. So I bought it. And after I started reading more and learning more about this brand. And so I bought into this idea. And so I kind of like fell in love after the fact, but it wasn't per se, the reason I bought it wasn't the fact that they had this this strong purpose. So even sometimes when we do believe we we own this brand because we we believe in it, sometimes that happens after the fact. Okay, let's talk about Patagonia. This is this mm-hmm. is an awesome thing. The Patagonia clothes that you buy, uh, chances are, are quite more uh, expensive and pricier than alternatives. But for mm-hmm. whatever reason, you decided without the the rationalization, your reptilian brain, your your system one thinking, you said like, I want that. So why mm-hmm. did you buy something that is sometimes twenty to fifty percent more expensive than a commodity alternative? Why? Hmm. I think it's definitely has to do with the, the power of branding. I mean, a brand sends out signals mm-hmm. that indicates a certain price premium that might work. But it, I'm just saying that. Was it a rational decision that I bought it? No, I think it was something that happened on a different level. So I think th- this is where this concept gets confusing because you might say, well, it is differentiation on the unconscious level. And I would probably tend to agree with that. But I think what Byron Sharp, for example, is referring to is meaningful differentiation. So saying we are different because we believe X and people buy that because they also believe X. He says that is not really a huge factor and uh, there's enough science to prove that. I can give you an example. I was just, I'm just working on a jewelry brand right now and I'm doing research on, on like why do people buy jewelry? So the, one of the questions was to rank the, the most, um, let's say the most deciding factors on why they would buy a certain jewel. And one of those um, factors was, for example, the the purpose or the meaning or the, the story behind the jewel. And so if you rank out that versus, for example, the style of the ring or just the fact that it has a certain quality, those those things such as purpose or meaning always rank really low which is different than than what a lot of people talk about today. So that's interesting to me for sure. All right, I still want to stay on Patagonia here, okay? Yeah, yeah for sure. Let's you, stick you're, around. you're making an irrational, impulsive, emotional, or whatever gut feeling, system one thinking decision to purchase. And I'm in alignment with you there because there's not even logic to understand why you did that. But you did pay more for something. You went out of mm-hmm. your way to do something and there's a decision that's being made whether you understand it or not whether you can trace back like their messaging their marketing or what we don't even know but you told yourself a story Mm -hmm. about why you want to pay more you might tell yourself it's better made or you might say that the design is nicer but there's something much deeper than that and i think somewhere along the way uh in your pre in your life you may have seen somebody wear it or you may have heard of something or somebody else and you became curious about it. Maybe you didn't store it in your long-term memory, but it's there. It's this feeling, right? Mm-hmm. And you go in and you buy it. And so mm-hmm. here's the thing. It's like, I still want to stick on this thing. It's like you say to yourself, uh, you would say 80% of the stuff you buy, you just buy randomly without a reason. But you're mm-hmm. you're buying still into that emotional gut feeling system one thinking. So mm-hmm. Patagonia has done a decent job of telling their story and 
Yeah, and you know, there's a story that we tell ourselves just because something's more expensive, that it mm-hmm. must be better, that more people must prefer that, or I can afford this, or I deserve this. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stories that you're telling yourself, and you are, you know, you're looking for meaning and for identity. So I'm going to challenge you a little bit. So I'm looking <laughs> at you right now. What what brand of headphones are you using? Uh, <laughs> let me look at let, yeah. let me look at the logo. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's a uh, Philips. Philips. Now, why did you choose Philips? I, I have no idea, and this is not to. I know this can sound like he's trying to prove a point. I actually really have no idea. I, I just think I went on a certain web shop and looked for decent quality headphones, and and that, the highest that was reviews. Okay. No, it's but it's probably at that moment in time I was looking for cheap headphones, but I have more expensive headphones as well, which I probably researched more. So mm-hmm. if I had worn those for, for from Sony or something, you would probably be in the better questioning no, no, no. line. <laughs> See, so the thing is, you still make a decision one way or the other. Like sure, even when sure, you sure. when you buy something cheaper, because I had this debate with somebody recently. Well, buying something cheaper says to to the world, like I don't care. Like I, I value other things. So everything that you buy says something about you. And I really believe this. Even in your non-participation of it is your participation in it. I I agree in a sense that everything you buy says something about you. And right? that that in that moment in time you, you were doing something. So it always says something about you. Mm-hmm. But the the thing is, for example, let let's Patagonia is is this great example because what is interesting is I bought, let's say, one or two or maybe three T-shirts, really satisfied with the quality and all yes. that. But but now I'm buying different clothes. And this is what, again, comes out of this science, is that people, even loyal people, tend to um, be like, the he calls it cognitive misers or something. It's a hard, it's a scientific <laughs> approach. But it's the idea that we tend to, be loyal but not for so long and sure. so that that's normal but the, the problem is if we for example if we tend to over focus on our brand tribe as we, we we can call it that if we tend to focus on our loyalty we are in a big there's a big risk involved here because as a brand if you're only investing in your brand tribe and not in acquiring new customers you're at a risk of like just it's a you know this term the leaky bucket where just this idea that people even if they are loyal they they tend to just skip out or the 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 idea of the sales funnel is leaking at the bottom because people they skip brands even if they're satisfied with right. it even if there's a big story so for most especially light buyers it's actually not that important this meaning they even if they they like the story they move on they go to a new brand so what is the key factor to growing your brand to gaining market share if you realize that people that most people buying your brand are not going to be these loyal tribe members that believe in your set of values etc then the most important part is acquiring new customers it's investing in mental and physical availability. So why do they need people to do branding? Because branding branding is one of the most important aspects, but the what happens sometimes is we tend to so so we focus let's say we as designers we're specialists at branding. We know how a color, how typography, how all these things work on these signals, these these gut feelings, and that's what we're really strong at. So I 
believe that. And that's what science also shows us. But what then happens is we we start going into brand strategy and we start also defining brands in, in words and we start positioning them. Sometimes we start actually, for example, not just asking a client, like, what's your positioning? We start telling them, maybe you should be positioned differently. And that's where the danger comes in. If we think that, for example, if we think about these concepts as meaningful differentiation and, and positioning, if we think that they will automatically attract customers because we are positioned differently, in reality, it, science has shown us that for most brands, for most companies, differentiation won't attract customers automatically, meaning they won't flock to your brand because you're special. You need to be out there. You need to have share of voice. You know this. I mean, you you with the future, I think you're building a huge brand, but this is not like it's not like you are just standing in a room and people are flocking to you. You're building a lot of efforts to build brands. And I think that's again I think I kind of lost track here of, of this idea, but branding, to get back to your point, so why is branding important? Because what he says, it's not about differentiation, it's more about distinctiveness. And so distinctiveness, that's the key point of branding, is how to be recognized. When people see, for example, just a 10% portion of the golden arches, they think McDonald's, and they automatically probably think something like hamburgers or they associate. So these distinctive assets are really crucial to branding, but those aren't per se on the level of meaningful differentiation. There are, those are more like if you see a color or a typography or a combination of just elements, you know that's the brand and you immediately associate the category with it. And so you feel like buying it. And then, of course, there's this next level again of this, you need to be physically available. So if you can be mentally available by showing your brand and being recognized, then you need to also be able to be bought easily. So if I want to buy a course from the future, I need to first recognize that the future is that brand. I need to be able to associate it by this mental availability, but then also I need to be able to buy it at the right moment, at the right place without doing too much hustle. Otherwise I will go somewhere else. And this is what he has like Byron Sharp has shown a lot of times that even people that aren't loyal to, let's say, let's say Philips, I don't, I don't like this brand particularly. Why did I buy a Philips headphone? Because I really don't like this brand. I have no preferability for this brand whatsoever. I bought it because it was physically available and probably because also when I saw the name Philips, it did ring a bell somehow that it was an electronic brand. So you see what I'm saying? Like even Philips could be successful without being completely different to me by just being physically available everywhere. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of things to talk about. So when you, when you mention like uh, physically available and mentally available, um, is there a, is something in your life? Because I, I, I may be a very different kind of consumer than you, where you go out of your way, like you go to the back of the store or you drive from store to store because what you want isn't available. It happens if the desire is very high, but I, I'm trying to think of an example, but for most cases... It's probably not going to be the case, but mm. I can imagine I can imagine I, I probably did some more efforts for certain brands to, to get it. I'm sure. Right. I'm sure. Yeah. So, for yeah. example, um, McDonald's is pretty ubiquitous here in America. 
but mm-hmm. there's there's a far few number of in and out burgers where people will say like they'll drive past five or six McDonald's to go to in and out mm-hmm. burger and maybe I'm more particular than you but almost everything that I buy I'm very particular about what it is that I buy mm-hmm. so there's a, a brand of sunblock that isn't available in most places so I just don't buy even though it's uh, there's a hundred other alternatives out there I just don't buy it <laughs> and I either go on Amazon and buy it so I'm very specific about uh, what it is that I buy and what I put in my body and, and what what companies I wish to support whether I have a full understanding of who they are and what they really do is irrelevant no no I I agree and I understand what you're saying and I think because uh, maybe it, it started sounding like I was just this this person that just buys random stuff I'm mm-hmm. I, I I'm absolutely not because I'm obsessed by brands so I'm actually really biased probably by the because I I pay attention to messaging I pay attention to everything because it's my it's my job basically but I'm just trying to if you look at at the big numbers of like just all of these categories how people buy in, and I'm talking really about volumes here. I'm not talking about us as just individuals. And why is volume important? It's because it's it's sales revenue. I mean, it, there's a huge difference between, for example, me and you saying, well, we would drive the other way. Maybe we're 0.000% of that, that brand's revenue. And if you look at... Um, all buyers of a category of a brand there's this pattern that emerges and it's always the same and the the pattern is really that most light buyers just buy different brands for example coca-cola shares 72 percent of its buyers with pepsi and so this is a scientific pattern and that doesn't mean that the other 30%, for example, is really loyal to the brand and that they really are excited about the brand and that they go extra ways to, to do that. But the problem is, the question is really, and, and this is, a, I think, an important nuance to make here. I'm talking about gaining market share. Not all brands or not all companies their only goal is to gain market share. Maybe your goal is to build the best brand and to build the best customer service. This is com- something completely different. But if it comes to growing your market share, becoming the market leader, you'll probably have to do a lot of these things that aren't that fun. And actually, it's interesting to me, if you look at big brands, they're usually positioned like really wide. They target everyone. They are really like broad in the sense that, and that that even happens on an agency level. If you look at, for example, our industry, small boutique agencies have smaller customer bases that are more loyal. Well, not more loyal, but they have just smaller customer bases because they are positioned more, that's, that's niching down. But if you look at huge agencies, they are almost all the time really full service because they have a bigger customer base and they they tend to have more customers that way so you can can you see the pattern I'm, I'm talking about yeah okay so i'm gonna have to ask you for a favor on a couple of different things because you mm-hmm. you talk for a very long period of time and you're bringing up many points and moving from one thing to the next and i like to <laughs> narrow in on one or two things to see where okay. our potential differences are so that we can have mm-hmm. a rational deep conversation about it so that we can be both better informed and the people who are listening to this episode can have the same feeling about it, okay? Now, sure. one thing is if people are indifferent about what they buy, 
let's just pretend like because you're like no I'm, I'm i'm actually more particular than than what i was saying but let's mm-hmm. just say like there are people out in the world and quite a few of them that are indifferent like one brand or another doesn't matter like my dad he doesn't really care whatever is available whatever is cheap that's what he wants and if that's the case there is no point to try to market to those people there's no point to build a brand because whatever's more available in the moment they have zero brand affinity or loyalty to them right so there's no point can you agree on that or no no <laughs> okay let's talk no. about why you, no, why no, you no, no it's it's a it's a it's a fair point but i think that's that's the thing so first off nobody's really indifferent or not indifferent i think you can be indifferent at certain points about certain categories and it all depends on just like it can even i can be really indifferent about a category at a certain point and like an hour later i can't or two days later i can't again this example of the headphones is a really good example one day i was really i wanted to buy this decent headphone and the the brand mattered to me and the quality mattered and so i invested a lot of time with it the other time i just needed a headphone quickly and so i ordered the first one that was physically available but even then when it is about just that physical availability there's also again this concept of mental availability and so it is important to be like as as the people say it's important to be top of mind but what top of mind means for somebody that thinks in the differentiation mindset is different than what somebody thinks in the availability mindset availability is more about the fact that just thinking about let's say bread there's a certain brand that comes to mind and that's about it when you think about terms of differentiation it's almost like you think about the values and the brand that comes along with it and so there's this just just this spectrum of nuance so being indifferent is not i think this idea of some customers are and others aren't i think it's just a matter of context and timing so i would say like it's hard to say that that indifference is, is a thing for for it's like not a segment of people or anything. It's just we are we all are indifferent sometimes. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Hey, Ben Burns from the future here. If you don't recognize my voice, you might know me from our YouTube channel as the friendly guy with the big beard. Yep, that's me. Listen, the future's mission is to teach a billion creatives how to make money doing what they love without feeling gross about it. And let's be honest, historically, we creative types are great at producing the work, but not so great at running the business, especially when it comes to things like sales, marketing, and money. I know, personally, I used to struggle with all of those. Now, fortunately for you though, we have a slew of courses and products designed specifically to help you run your business better. These are tools like the complete case study and the perfect proposal. These things are there to help you attract new clients and then wow them with a thorough and professional presentation. Now, you can go even deeper with one of our business courses like project management, how to find clients, and the intensive business bootcamp. Check out all of our courses and products about running a creative business by visiting thefuture.com slash business. Welcome back to our conversation with Steph Hammerlink. When you're indifferent, what is the point of trying to sell to you? It doesn't matter. 
Well, it only I availability, according to you, because mental if, and physical. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. So we'll we'll just say availability as a shorthand, mental and physical, right? So if there was a brand of uh, Sony headphones that are the same price that were in front of you, you would just bought that. So we we only can impact material change in people's lives or influence when they're ready for it whether they turn on or off it doesn't matter so for example like like i said again my dad doesn't care about headphones he only wants Mm -hmm. almost everything my dad would just prefer the cheapest thing that's his own identity okay he's a very frugal person (laughs) right so anything that sounds expensive it leaves a bad taste in his mouth except for liquor Uh (laughs) aha so there's only so so see like if i'm a liquor guy I want to talk to a, a passionate group who really care about the the kind of liquor they consume. He doesn't mm-hmm. drink a lot, so when he drinks, he's like, "I understand this is really good and this is not good." But it's mm-hmm. it's still a story he tells himself based on the bottle, about the design, the packaging, the colors, and the graphics, and the heritage of that uh, or the provenance of that mm-hmm. that that bottle, right? So mm-hmm. it only makes sense to signal to people who are open to signaling. Uh, on a level. Now, I also feel this way. Okay, Daniel Pink writes about this in his book, right? He says, we, we are living in an age of abundance right now where we have, we live longer, we have more than what we need, we can eat, we, we have a, a problem with obesity, at least in this country, and you, you there's this, there's a lot there. So we've transcended mm-hmm. this period, like in a very short period of time, where we have a lot of choices, and we're looking for transcendent experiences throughout our lives. We're becoming a more or a dematerialized culture where we want experiences and feelings rather than physical things. We pay more for less now. And you could argue with that if you wish. <laughs> I probably, I think, I don't know if, if we've changed all that much in, in the sense that I, but this is just, again, I, I've been reading a lot about like these, these heuristics and these, these unconscious mm-hmm. things. And I think the way we buy hasn't changed significantly in, in let's say any ever since our economy or capitalism just started for that matter because most of the buying is is done on that level of reptilian brain and that hasn't changed at all so i think the idea of not being open for signaling is not really true your 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 like unconscious brain is constantly trying to process all the signals that are out there and branding has a huge role to play in like being distinctive enough to be noticed by 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 that processing system so i'm i'm not sure if it's like an, an, a matter of being open or not open and I, i'm not sure it's like if you say because i i feel like you're saying that if this world is true about meaningful differentiation not being that important then advertising doesn't matter then branding doesn't matter is that what you're trying to say if just like hypothetically no no no, no. hold on say that one more time so if if this suppose this theory I'm 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 bringing to you this idea that meaningful differentiation doesn't exist, and your your point would be that if that's true, then advertising or branding doesn't really have any use. Um, probably I wouldn't say it the way that you said it, but if you're <laughs> if you're saying it like you know what um, we we don't join tribes, we we make impulsive decisions based on no data and and there's no point to any of this, then why be in the branding and marketing space? Except for the fact that you could just repeat your message uh, to, to have the kind of mental availability and make sure you win the distribution war. And <laughs> I, I, I don't 
that doesn't jive with the, the observations in the world that I live in. Meaning, <laughs> the more you advertise to me, the more you drive me away. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know what's a problem with this this whole, I think the first time I read it, I also was really like, it 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 doesn't sound really like, it doesn't make us humans sound really, uh, it doesn't, the whole theory doesn't sound sexy or nice or even from a branding standpoint doesn't make that sense and i think what the problem is here is that it is like it's more of it establishes a baseline for success but that doesn't mean we can build meaning and stories up on top of that but what my problem really is here is that well problem i mean what what frustrates me sometimes is that we tend to ignore the baseline of what's important and we just skip over that and we just talk about differentiation and brand purpose because that's really important but i think we tend to forget that there is this baseline of like how to grow a brand it's really important and physical and mental availability are just these two things that are availability in general are just it's just this thing we need to like grasp before we can start thinking about and i can give you an, an example of an industry that's really like hurting right now because they ignored it and that's the the whole d2c industry you you know you know this industry i suppose is this direct to consumer yeah, yeah. So D two C. Uh, let me give, for example, uh, mm-hmm. Casper or uh, Dollar Shave Club. Or, okay, okay. Um, sure, Dollar yeah, Shave. Yeah, let's yeah. let's focus on yeah. Dollar Shave. That's what yeah. I recognize. Go ahead. Yeah. So so Dollar Shave Club. Um, this they had this idea of like, well, well, okay, we're gonna create this cool brand that doesn't have the typical distribution channels that ignores the whole typical retailer like Gillette, for example. They're in all the big stores. They, they cut the middleman, sort of speaking, and so they go direct to consumer. And this all sounds really good. And I, I was a big, a huge fan of this idea. But now it seems that a lot of the D2C brands are actually failing their, their, and they were hugely overvalued. For example, Casper, there's a lot of D2C brands, there are some articles about this that are failing because they actually ignored the fact that a lot of this these distribution models and and this whole fact about how mental and physical availability works is was kind of ignored for example um if if the idea is you need to target the whole category instead of for example a niche what what i think is typical in this idea of differentiation find your niche sorry i'm also again making a lot of words so stop me if i'm going too far but uh, <laughs> can you just D2C. say it shorter cuz i'm like i'm, okay, I'm following yeah. you yes okay d2c so the problem was they thought let's ignore traditional brands with their distribution channels, with their big advertising budget. Let's target millennials through digital media and let's ignore this whole model. It seems that it's not working because the fact is that they were they didn't have enough sales volume. They, tr- they tried to focus too much on loyal customers. They tried to differentiate them in a way and they ignored the fact that just these these again that baseline that i said about physical and mental availability they ignored it and what's happening now is that a lot of these d2c brands such as casper such as harry such as dollar shave club they are one they are advertising on television in subways they are um, being in retail stores they are trying to open up they are trying to target more people with a broader message and they are trying to be 
well, let's say less um, maybe differentiated. So it is an issue. You see what what like this. If you ignore that baseline, it it can be a problem. It's not a problem to be different if you didn't ignore the baseline. Let's say Apple or Nike. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of things that you're talking about there, and I don't want to get into their business model because there's more to it than just that. Uh, mm-hmm. A Dollar Shave Club basically came out of nowhere. Right, so say there's the mm-hmm. market share of 100% for razor blades, and Gillette probably owns all of that for a long time. I don't know mm-hmm. any other brand besides Gillette, and yep. and then all of a sudden um, these guys come in and they start to carve out market share from zero. How do they do that? They do that through differentiation. If they were to try to compete against Gillette on the shelves with their advertising, they don't have the budget, they don't have the distribution, they can't buy the shelf space. They have no start, so they have to create this story. And the story is this young, hip CEO says, F this, F that, and we just make a really good blade, and this is what you need, and we'll cut out the middleman. And they made an outrageous campaign. And that message either resonated or did not resonate with its audience, but enough people apparently signed up to get their blades. Later Mm -hmm. on, we have to make sure that the quality of the blades lives up to the promise. And then they're going to have growing pains that you can't sustain yourself just doing the same thing because it's relatively small. But in a relatively short period of time, in the last five years, a company like Harry's and Dollar Shave Club are now next to Gillette. And I'm pretty sure Gillette is not happy the fact that whatever market share they had, they have to now give up some of it to these other upstarts. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's just the fact that um, um, Unilever, who owns Gillette, also bought million dollar shave club. So, but they are in. It, it's true that the fact that they were, they had two options: we need to buy this because they were probably afraid, or yeah. we need to just uh, let it go and let it grow. And so they bought it for an for a completely crazy overvaluation. A lot of people say that, but I don't know if that's true. But at least they they did something. But what actually. I, I, I agree. They entered the market, they used differentiation, they were really aggressively and they scared some people and they did that really successfully. But there is an order here to things. And I think that's where maybe a lot of nuance for, in this discussion is from. Probably when you are entering the market, it's smart to be niched, to be differentiated, to be have a certain like audience to focus on. But once you start growing, once you start becoming big, you need to be more open. You need to target everyone in the category. You need to be you need to acquire new customers. So you see where this is going. It's almost like it's a chronological thing. It's not differentiation doesn't matter. It's more like differentiation matters. But the bigger you want to become, the more market share you want to gain, the less it matters. And I think that's what the book is really talking about is only if you really want to achieve that huge market share, then differentiation isn't the strategy to go for. Mm, Okay, let's talk about that. So I think most of the brands that we work with are not going to be the 800-pound gorilla. They're not going to be the market leader. They're not going to have the lion's share of the market. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe your client base is different. I'm not working with Unilever. I'm working with the upstarts. And so mm-hmm. the only viable strategy is to find your tribe, find your audience, create a message that's authentic to who you are that might resonate with them. And that's your best strategy moving forward. Of course, as you scale, your strategies change. And then you you have to kind of continue to think about growth. Mm-hmm. Now here, let's talk about Tesla. 
Okay, because Tesla was this nothing company with a big audacious idea and dream,、mm-hmm. and they started to appeal to a, a very small segment of the market. And they realized too that in order for them to compete and survive, they have to make a a a, a vehicle that a mass audience can buy.、Mm-hmm. And they have to be able to change the narrative, right? Or they have to change the story so that they can do this. And of course, Tesla is making some inroads, and we'll see where they go. The story is not done yet, but if over time they start making gasoline or petrol-based vehicles, they start to lose who they are in the pursuit of a bigger market. At which point, the next Tesla will come in. And replace them. So Tesla has been able to innovate. Now, I recently came back from Europe, and they were telling me about how、uh, car the big auto manufacturers in Germany are freaking out over Tesla. <laughs> They're all trying to get their electronic cars and platforms up online because they were asleep. They didn't serve an audience that was changing.、Mm-hmm. Right. So, of course, over time, you you need to evolve and change. But when you start to dilute yourself to become all things to all people, you're opening yourself up to A new person that's going to come into the market, a brand that's going to then speak very passionately about something that they feel in their heart, and they're going to be able to supplant you over time.、Mm-hmm. I, I think this is a great point that you're bringing up, and I think what's the difference here again is this idea that Tesla is really about technological innovation. I mean, they they created practically a new category. Well, it, it existed, but、right. was really small. They, they created a new category. So. The fact that people were buying electric cars from Tesla makes sense because they 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 just created this new this whole new ID. But on the level of of meaningful differentiation, I, I again I think it's a lot in the words, as you can see. Like disruptive innovation can surely bring you forward in in and become a successful company. Although there is also a lot of disruptive innovation that leads to nowhere, or a lot of startups that fail. But Tesla didn't. And so I think there again, there's this idea like let's suppose all all cars now are electric, and then then we can start comparing them on meaningful differentiation. And then I, you would probably see that again there are these other forces of being as much available and being advertising as much as possible, be, being louder than the rest would probably gain you more market share than just being having a different meaning or a different concept. So. Can you see what I mean? The difference between like this technological disruption or differentiation versus this meaningful differentiation. Yeah, we could talk about that. So, Tesla did not invent the category, not not even by a long shot. Electric cars were available at the beginning. It just、mm-hmm. uh, was the idea that was killed by better marketing, probably, and then we went with the way of petrol, right? But、mm-hmm. um, General Motors, I believe, has a vehicle had a vehicle called the EV1. Nissan、mm-hmm. has a Leaf, but these things did not sell in volume. Mm-hmm. Why is that? There's a lot of different reasons, and I、mm-hmm. think what Elon Musk did is a pretty brilliant stroke of positioning. Okay, because we're、mm-hmm. talking about position doesn't matter. Well, he、mm-hmm. goes on stage and he's talking about the Model Three, I think,、uh, or something like that, and he says, you know, we're we're or the Model X, I can't remember, but he's on stage and he's like, I want to introduce to you the new car, the model that we're building, but before I do, I want to remind everybody why we're here. So then he brings he reframes the conversation. He says to the audience in attendance and where it's broadcasted worldwide, he says that we're facing the greatest threat to humankind on a on a scale that we can't even understand. That here's what's happening in the environment, right? And and to、mm-hmm. reduce our carbon emissions, we need to do X, Y, and Z. So he goes into this whole thing and he says everybody that bought the original Model T Roadster, 
Thank you for doing that because you made it possible for us to launch the Model S. Everybody that bought the Model S, we thank you for that because then it allows us to model, launch the Model X. And so they're moving more and more towards uh, mass appeal and consumer cars and vehicles that the general audience can buy. So he's mm-hmm. reminding people not that you're buying a car, but you're helping to fight global warming to reduce mm-hmm. our carbon footprint. And so here's the thing. So soon we're going to associate all of this stuff with him and the batteries and the solar panels. Like he's building a whole ecosystem around this idea. So when Porsche comes out with an electric car, Mercedes and BMW, they're all coming on online with electronic cars. I'm curious as to how well those will perform relative to Tesla. Because mm-hmm. whoever dominates the market share, whoever's first or the biggest, gobbles up the, you know more than 60% of the market. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's the I, I I think I agree in in the fact that I'm curious as well, and and I think from what if I would place my bets, I would put my bets on on the brand that has the loudest share of voice. So meaning the brand that can make more noise in in these categories than other a noise that can be, um, for example, Elon Musk. He's like a genius at making noise because he he his personal brand, the way he interacts, media they love it and they buy it, and so he creates almost. I think more earned media than a lot of other car brands have to pay for an ad. So I think that's a really strong positioning, a strong, yes, positioning. See? <laughs> I used C. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, again, uh, this is this is where I still, I'm, I'm doing brand strategy from day to day. Mm-hmm. Positioning is a huge part of what I do. So I'm not trying to say to anyone listening, like, stop doing this whole positioning thing. It's useless. I'm just trying to, say like your positioning won't automatically attract customers if elon musk didn't have the muscle to create all the noise the personality if if people wouldn't have talked about tesla that way because of the press would have talked all the earned media that brand wouldn't be as big and they wouldn't and if they wouldn't be able to be bought anywhere in the world if they wouldn't have big facilities and car dealerships and distribution you wouldn't buy it so i think it's just I think I agree that having this brand and this strong personality and this it's it's amazing. I mean, that's what we do as a job. But again, understanding what lies below that is important because there are a lot of brands that just said, well, let's skip the other things. Because, for example, if we have a strong purpose or if we have a strong positioning, then we won't need all of this stuff. And there's a lot of I've had a lot of clients. I have a lot of discussions that they say, well, we need a brand purpose, for example, because now everybody has a purpose and it's really important that we have our own purpose because that will make us a more attractive brand. And I don't think that's always the case. I mean, do you buy from Amazon? I do. Do Do you know what the the purpose is from Amazon? No, no. So Amazon is the the biggest retailer in the world. Yes. The, do people know what the the why Amazon does what it does? No, it's convenience. No. It's mental and physical availability. Is that is that? The company I want to run, is that the brand I want to create? Absolutely not. I'm kind of disgusted by it, but I still go and buy on it because that's that's how harsh this, this baseline can be. So it's the same with, this, there's this other, I don't know if you know Ryanair, for example. No. It's an airline. It's a low-cost airline here in Europe. And it's really like, it's, 
it's so shabby. Yeah. But they they have they have a brand. I mean, they have a huge brand. All the people know them. And I've flown so many times with Ryanair. Despite the fact that I hate all the, the, the stupid things, the way they cut costs. But, you know, sometimes I just want to fly really cheaply to Barcelona and have a cool weekend. And they're mentally available because I know Ryanair, cheap airline. And they're physically available because I can do it immediately. So you can see these things are as important. That's right. what I'm trying to say. So Ryanair, I'm not familiar with the brand. And mm -hmm. they're positioned as cheap, but not great. For anybody who wants a cheap but not great experience, that's the airline for you, and that's their positioning. Now, you had said something, which uh, I've never said the opposite, so I don't think we disagree here, which is you're saying differentiation and positioning do not automatically equal something in a tangible result. Nothing is automatic. Nothing is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. But basically, if you don't understand positioning, putting your product in the right place at the right price in the person's mind and in a physical way, you probably don't have a great shot of success. And almost mm -hmm. every company that we can talk about started as a little tiny disruptive company that didn't do everything that the big companies did, but they did something really well. And they had a story that people like us would share with each other. And they eventually would enter into the marketplace to a certain point that they become then the market leader. And this is just about growth and change. So it's easy for us to say, like, what does Amazon stand for? I don't know what they stand for, but at the beginning, they did have a focus and a niche. They sold books, all kinds of books at a pretty good price. So that was their positioning. Mm -hmm. They've expanded way beyond that. Now, here's the thing. I don't think I need to understand their purpose or their mission, but I do understand mm -hmm. something about the company in that Jeff Bezos is a radical visionary and disruptor himself. And what he does, I do believe in. Okay. And you think it's a horrible company. I don't. Because he's trying to do this very inclusive thing where because I'm a prime member, he's giving me music and uh, he's giving me books on access and he's also giving me videos that I can watch. It's all part of my membership. So he's, he's not trying to nickel and dime me for every little thing. And I appreciate mm -hmm. that as a consumer, even though I don't watch a lot of Amazon Prime content. Mm -hmm. Sure, but do you think that most of the customers that aren't in our field would really care about what Jeff Bezos is about? I can't speak for anybody else except for yeah. myself. Yeah, right. No, but I, I and I think that's where I'm the same. I mean, I look at these companies, I look at how their brands are run, and I admire them or I don't. Right. And I think we are like we are in this industry, so it is different for us, and that's okay. I mean, that's fine. We can admire a company for what they do or how they do it. Yeah. But I think it's just sometimes if we take a step back and we just look at, let's say, the numbers, then there is this thing that if we tend to forget, like let's say I've studied this idea of brand tribes. I love the idea. I'm in love with it. So I, I advise to my client who has like, let's say, because we said, companies of scale but a scale in your market can be really that can be a small market so you see yeah. what i'm saying yeah so let's say i advise this company well you need to focus on building a brand tribe because that's the way you're gonna win that's the way you're gonna be and then you give these examples of apple and all these 
The problem is it might be that actually for them to grow, they need to focus on acquiring new customers more than they need to focus on loyalty because it might be the fact that they are already maybe, a, 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 like, let's say, a medium player in that market and to grow, they don't need to focus on their, their smaller tribe. So it really depends not only on if you're working for, let's say, Amazon or Unilever, but it also depends on like what is your position in a smaller market. And I think even from a starting point, you could you could work with this idea of how can we get as much physical and, and mental availability without being completely different and still be successful. I think that's possible. I think there is a lot of brands that actually do that, but they're not talked about as much because they don't stand out in the marketplace. So maybe we're biased as industry people because we only see what sticks out, but we don't always relate it to the money. That's just a thought. Yeah, I think it would be irresponsible for anybody that wants to legitimately call themselves a brand strategist to focus on only the things that we care about and not to be concerned about the bottom line. And the bottom mm -hmm. line is what keeps them in business, which allows them to further their mission and their cause. And so I'm not an advocate for, for that. Okay, so let's just be clear about that. So mm -hmm. when you say that a brand, maybe they've got good penetration on a very small market or a medium-sized market, doesn't really matter. Their whole point is to grow their customers. And you can grow your customers by attracting a different kind of customer or doing a better job of telling the story about why people buy what you do. So I think Tesla has done a great job of just telling their story over and over again so that more mm -hmm. and more people become aware of their story, not necessarily going after a totally different customer who's never going to buy an electric car because that's chasing, I think, a whole different market. And when you do that, you alienate the market that you're in because they're like, you have a split personality. I don't know what <laughs> you stand for anymore. And that can become very problematic, right? So mm -hmm. I think you, because uh, you are living as uh, and working as a brand strategist, where I'm not. I'm just making observations here, okay? Mm -hmm. And you owe it to your client to look at the problem in the most unbiased way that you can as a human being and mm -hmm. try to understand their goals and align that with a, a strategy that is going to get them there. Mm -hmm. That could look very different. It could be like, let's run promotions or let's run a blitz marketing campaign to get just because we think you're great and everything, but nobody knows mm -hmm. who you are. Or it could mm -hmm. be a repositioning or rebranding or a whole number of things. So you you arrive open to what the problem is going to be and what the solution could look like. And that's what you're supposed to do. Absolutely. And you know what? I think this 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 because this has created a lot of friction within myself as well, because, you know, I learned all this stuff about, you know, Marty's books and I still love this whole idea. And I think still, if you read them, it's good as a designer to learn this stuff because actually you learn about this idea of what is the customer's gut feelings, right? I absolutely think that's crucial. But I think what happens is at a certain point when you're consulted as a brand strategist, not to just for example, let's do a workshop or get out some information or facilitate, extract information. But you're also expected to, for example, give advice on the company company's heading for the future that oftentimes just like basing it on, for example, the client's assumptions or let's say um, what we know from, from differentiation and branding is often not enough. And that's why I'm, I started digging into this behavioral science, economics, um, marketing science and I think that's the only thing that's why I, I again that's why I contacted you is I think if we could all like 
especially when we're in brand strategy, if we could learn more from these different perspectives, we could see maybe a little bit more nuance and maybe some other patterns that we didn't thought think about before just this one idea, because I do see it's a lot of the same message about zigging and zagging. And that's okay for me, but I think there's a lot of other things such as distinctiveness, which I've mentioned, and for example, salience just being available mentally. Those are concepts that are maybe as important if you are steering a business because you're not just steering a brand, you're steering a whole company into a direction. So that's, I think, the, the most important thing I wanted to add to this conversation. This is Steph, and you're listening to The Future. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode. If you're new to the future and want to know more about our educational mission, visit thefuture.com. You'll find more podcast episodes, hundreds of YouTube videos, and a growing collection of online courses and products covering design and business. Oh, and we spell the future with no E. The Future Podcast is hosted by Christo and produced by me, Greg Gunn. This episode was mixed and edited by Anthony Barrow with intro music by Adam Sanborn. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It's a tremendous help in getting our message out there. And, you know, it lets us know what you like. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.